up, Danny. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Holmes Movies Podcast. My name is Anders Holmes, and I'm joined across the table, not over Zoom or over Skype, with my older brother, Adam. Boom! Hello. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's been Christmas. Christmas time! Christmas time! That is not a song, so we can't be sued. No, we can't. Uh, but, uh, yeah, happy Boxing Day. Uh, happy Boxing Day! We're recording on the 26th of December, 2022. Just a few more days until 2022 ends, and we're going to be into the new year, 2023. New year, new films. What's going to happen? What's going to come out? Uh, Masters uh, of the Air is going to be on HBO. I'm looking forward to that. Masters of what? The Air. It's like a new Band of Brothers thing. They're, they're in a plane. Isn't Barry Keegan in that? Keogh. No, but uh, our friend uh, Tom Phillips is. Mm, okay. Um, Isn't Carrie Fukunaga had something to do with that? Or well, I, I don't know. I think. Uh, back away. Um, yeah. Anyway, look, 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 2023 is almost at hand, but we are going back in time, aren't we, Anders? Yeah, like Huey Lewis. Like Huey Lewis. Yes, every time. Every single fucking time you mention that. Um, we're going back in time because we have back been. Back in time. Oh, God. <laughs> We've been doing our top 10 lists for bloody ages. Have we been doing them all year? Apart from that brief pause to do alternative uh, yeah. Oscars. I think we started it at the beginning of the year. Yeah, last So time. we've basically spent a year doing bullshit lists that are bullshit because lists are bullshit. And uh, we decided we've had enough. And so we're going to finish off by doing the top 10 films of each decade. Each one of us is going to do a, is going to uh, submit their top 10. And um, we've already done the 2010s. We've already done the 2000s. If you haven't listened to those already, you can go back and listen to them um, because they're very good lists i think extremely yeah. good list of films it's um i think each uh each podcast contains independently something like 18 16 films i think there's some overlap actually i don't think there's any overlap in the two there wasn't any over overlap in the last episode there was in the first one because both of us put get out and parasite on the list well you just spoiled the 2010 episode for the listeners and oh, well i don't know they didn't i didn't say where on the list ah um well yes so um did you, so, yeah, you, so did you have a hard time putting this list together? Oh my god, I had a really rough time putting this 1990s list together. That's, well, that's where we are this week, listeners. The 1990s. The decade of Anders' birth. Yes, the born. decade one of the greatest minds in film was born. <laughs> Anders Fabricius Holmes. Yeah, I mean, the 90s was a very interesting period in filmmaking, I would say. The 90s is a very interesting period, full stop. There is a great podcast all about uh, 90s um, action uh, and political thrillers called Unclear and Pleasant, Unclear and Pleasant, and Pleasant Danger. Danger, which is hosted by Jamel Bowie and John Gans, which is you brought fabulous. It up, you brought it up on the last episode, I all think. All right, all right, all right. But now it's more germane because it's actually the 1990s. Yeah. Uh, a lot of, a decade lot of, of your birth. Yeah. And, um, a lot of dad, fr- uh, dad, dad thrillers. Dad. No, yeah, dad no, thrillers. Dad, no, I didn't. Um, yeah, a lot of dad thrillers in this yeah, one. Yeah. A lot of dad movies. Our dad yeah. liked a lot of movies from the 1990s. In fact, I'm looking at this list right here, and I'm seeing like three or four of his favorite movies. So, mm. yeah. Um, what was it about the 90s? I mean, so okay, context. We watched a film that is not in my top ten last night, but is from the 1990s called Sneakers. Yes, and it is a. Inc- so here are some things that it, that that. Um, that make it particularly 1990s. Number one, amazing cast. Number two, it's very, very funny. And number three, it's very, very gripping. Mm. Number four, it's almost completely devoid of interesting cinematography and interesting like filmmaking True. techniques. It's just a straight down the like straight bat thriller. Mm-hmm. Uh, number five, it's incredibly entertaining. Number six, it doesn't actually tell you that much about the human condition. No, it doesn't. So it's like it's it's both superficial but exceptionally well done like that 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 feels like that's like such a calling card for the 90s and then then i look at my list though and i see some films that are very very deep but then 
I look at others that that maybe have a bit more style than substance and are a mm. bit more concerned with being cool. I, do, I feel like the, 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 there are two groups that really sit on the 90s. One is boomers. Yeah. Like, so think about films like Memphis Bell and Saving Private Ryan, the kind of like grandpa worship that yeah, goes yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, some of these, the, the, the kind of sappy movies that are sort of targeted at people in their... A lot of rom-coms um, came out of this time. Yeah, but I'm, no, I'm thinking more about people in their, who, would be, who would have been in their 50s in the 1990s or who would have yeah. been in their... Like, who would have been young in the 60s and 70s and who were kind of matured a bit and who were interested in a different kind of filmmaking. But then the other generation that I feel that really um, makes its mark in the 1990s is Gen X with, like, all the irony and all the sort of... Um, cynicism yeah. American independent um, cinema really kicked into gear right and I also think that Gen X really influences at least in America a lot of the rom-coms mm-hmm. and some of let's be honest like Tarantino and shit like that so um, Sundance Film Festival really came into its own in this time because I feel like mm-hmm. I read a book uh, David no, you feel like you read a book no I no, I read it I was sorry that really badly worded sentence um, I read Peter I was about to say David Biskind but no it's David Biskind <laughs> I was putting David Thompson and Peter Biskind together oh god imagine that uh, so Peter Biskind's book um, I really like his uh, book Easy Riders Raging Bulls yeah not about the 90s uh, yeah about the 70s so we could bring it up on the 70s episode but we he wrote a book about like the rise of American independent cinema in the late 80s and the 90s and all that sort of stuff called Down and Out Pictures and he was talking a lot, you know, the Weinsteins are brought up a little bit in that. Ooh. Yeah. And it also talks a little bit about how the Sundance Film Festival kind of came into its own, but kind of struggled a little bit after its first initial start. But I think once it kind of came into the 90s, and I feel like, you know, in 1992, there was like a real big boom on of American independent films. And on the Criterion Channel earlier this year, they actually had like a theme, which was like American, you know, independent movies from 1992 that, or Sundance 92. That's what it was called. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it is, I do think it's kind of an interesting, um, it's kind of an interesting deck. I mean, you go from, basically in the in the long span of the 90s, you go from the end of the Cold War to the beginning of, you know, the post 9-11 era, yeah. really. Um, so, yeah. And in between, you get, you know, a lot of just really interesting politics, at least in the West, about, you know, I mean, Clinton in the States, Blair in the UK. I mean, I feel like the Blair years and Britpop make their own impact on British cinema I mean you look at the films of Richard Curtis like Notting Hill and stuff well, like, like Danny that. Boyle as well with Trainspotting right well yeah well Danny Boyle takes it a slightly different direction but yeah but there's still a sense of cool there's yeah. still like a swagger to his films yeah um, there were a anyway, lot, of, should, should lot, we lot of cool films came out in this a lot of cool but a lot of but you know what it's not just cool films but it's films that know they're cool yeah and are trying to be cool yeah which arguably makes them less cool but we can talk about that should we get into the list so that yeah. our listeners can 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 get you know can start getting outraged yes who went first last time it was you okay so you're going first so it's me you go uh, first us very dangerous hi dougie not a 90s happy film. new year dougie not a 90s film um so a film from uh, number 10 is from 1991 and it was direct- which was when you're from you're also from 1991 born, yes. yeah and it was a it was the it was the first film from uh, this filmmaker. He was uh, in his twenties, in his mid, uh, I think early to mid twenties. Uh, black filmmaker by the name of John Singleton, and um, he went on to get a few Oscar nominations for this film. Uh, sadly, did not win any. Uh, he should have done in for for the screenplay. And that film is uh, Boys in the Hood. You know what? I've never seen it. It's really, really good. God, 
All right, well, tell me about it. Well, so it stars uh, Lawrence Fishburne, mm, Cuba, Gooding, Cuba Gooding Jr., mm. uh, Cuba Gooding Jr., sorry, um, Ice Cube, and this was in this period where he was a bit, uh, he he had already sort of broken up with NWA at this point. Yeah. And then there's like, there's a, there's a guy in- So you got Cuba and Cube. Yeah. And uh, Morris Chestnut, uh, Angela Bassett, Nia Long, so- oh, what a cast. So I think, and I think Lawrence Fishburne actually requested to have Angela Bassett in the film. I think they were in that uh, Tina Turner uh, film together beforehand. Oh, she's fabulous. Yeah. She was in Malcolm X as well. She's brilliant. She's great. And um, she's probably going to get an Oscar nomination for the new Black Panther film because she was great in that film. Oh, really, okay. really good. So, um, Boys in the Hood, it's obviously got sort of legendary status. Yeah. Um, so, it's set in South Central LA. Um, it's an urban, urban coming of age thriller kind of movie. And um, Cuba Gooding Jr. plays a character called Trey Styles. And at the beginning of the film, he's a he's um, he's a child, and his mother Reva, Reva says, "Okay, you've been screwing up in school, and you're getting into fights." We made a deal. You're moving to auntie and uncle in Bel Air. Not that, but you're moving okay. in. You're moving to South Central with your dad, and his dad is called Jason Furious Styles. He's called Furious in the film, and his dad is kind of played by Lawrence Fishburne. He is this sort of, you know, gives him a bit of tough love and how to sort of build his sort of way this in the world. This feels and stuff. very. This feels very nineties. Yeah. This idea of tough love feels very nineties. Yeah, and he's got a line that says like, you know, it's like any man with a dick can make a baby, but it takes a man to be a father. Damn. Yeah, and um, I mean that's, I mean scientifically that's not true because there can be spermal inc- incompatibilities yeah. and so on and and and, and you do you technically Lawrence you you need testicles not a dick yeah so you know he's you know and it's about you know we see Cuba Gooding Jr. as as a man and his father has raised him to be like a respectful person and and also just kind of trying to keep him out of danger and also the guy who sort of in is in the sort of crime world is uh, Doughboy played by Ice Cube. And um, I make dough, but don't call me Doughboy. That's <laughs> yeah. that's where that line comes from. Probably, yeah. Yeah. And Cuba Gooding Jr. is is friends with his brother Ricky, and Ricky and Doughboy are not they're not friendly brothers. They Ricky. don't have a great. The the mother prefers Ricky than um, than Doughboy, who spends most of his time with a bunch of hoodlums. Well, I, I mean, obviously mothers shouldn't play favorites, but yes. I, you know, so that so that kind of makes their relationship very. You know, it, they come tense. to tense and they come to conflict a lot. And also, there's a lot of conflict because there's gangs. There's a lot of people who are running, driving around in cars and pointing guns at them and saying like "boom" and you know could shoot them and stuff like that. So yeah. they're always living on edge. And there's a lot of scenes in the films where they hear gunfire in the background. And John Singleton had you know them. You know, he he wasn't going to say when they were going to hear that. So a lot of the time, they're reacting. You know, live, live. Yeah. And you know, it's a film about you know just you know about you know, a black man trying to survive in South Central LA and trying to get out of the hood and make something of their life, basically. Wow. And how, you know, and also there's an old, there's also an idea of like, because Furious, there's a moment in the movie where he takes them out to this, you know, real estate place and he's talking about how, because Furious is sort of like, you know, has this kind of moment where he, he sounds a bit, can I, can I just interrupt? He sounds a little bit like uh, Sam the Lion in The Last Picture Show. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. He does have that kind of vibe. And, um, you know, that he's talking about how like, it's you know the how like the government and the system is kind of breaking it down and building making criminals and all that sort of stuff so there's a lot there's a lot that john singleton is saying but at the heart of it it is about you know it, it is a coming of age story about a guy trying to you know survive in you know in quite a bad neighborhood where you know you have problems with gangs and you also have problems with 
corrupt police and stuff oh, like that. Fucking hell, we can't even get to. Well, obviously, actually, hang on a minute. Important context note here. When was the Rodney King riot? That was ninety two, wasn't it? Ninety. Ninety two. Yeah, yeah, I think it was. So yeah, so police. Hmm. Um, well, fuck the police, but do not, um, do not yeah. miss. I shouldn't miss this film. I no. want to go watch it. And, but it was. Um, I remember watching when I saw this film for the first time. I was really like at the end of it. I was very just like, whoa, like it really impacted me in a big, big way. All right. Well, I'm gonna watch it, and hopefully, I will be as impacted. Can I say my number ten now? Yes, you can. The Fugitive. Oh, classic. Um, a lot of people um might not think this film is worthy of a top ten. You know what I say to them? I don't care <laughs> um, because it is in my top 10. Um, so this is like right in the sweet spot of what I was talking about. And so this is the ultimate 90s, like proper thriller dad from the 90s. movie. Well, like, I saw this boomer, with my dad. dad. dad yeah. For the first time. yeah. It's like the politics of it are very kind of like dad who voted for Clinton. The, mm. the feeling of it is very kind of, um, you know, it's, 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 it's politics are very liberal, but not radical. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's also, as I say, it's 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 incredibly it's it fulfills those criteria I talked about earlier. Yeah. No interesting cinematography, no real like sense of we've learned something about the human condition at the end. But what it does have is fucking amazing cast, like insane, mm. a, a brilliant script. Um, it has yeah. the um the the it has the 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 ability to be funny and incredibly gripping at the same mm. time, which by the way is an ability that we have lost since the nineteen nineties, and I yes. think it's something that we should regain. Uh, along with um, uh, a more of a broad uh, consensus about politics. Anyway, whatever. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Um, it also has, I forget to mention, as part of our sneakers criteria list there, it has the classic 1990s trope of the music. It does have that you music. Know, and, um, the music. And I actually like the music in the movie. I, I think fucking it's love it. I, and if you put that on, if, yeah. I, was, if I was running, say... Um, and I can't run right now because my knee is fucked up. But if I was running... Probably run like Harrison Ford in the beginning of the film. Yeah, that's true. But if you put if that came on shuffle while I was running, yeah. I would run. I would run faster. Yeah. Definitely. Um, so it, it, yeah, the fugitive needs no introduction. Uh, yeah. Dr. Richard Kimball is accused of murdering his wife. When I came home, there was a man in my house. I, I fought by the way, this man. I don't know if he listens, but shout out to my friend Matt Cummings who, uh, who loves this movie as well. We love doing Harrison Ford mm. impressions. And there are a lot of good ones in this. There's a lot of Harrison Ford a lot pointing. Of pointing. Yeah. You switched the samples. Provasic. Um, he's accused of murdering his wife. Of course he didn't. He escapes prison somehow. But train, car, massive stunt. Watch yes. the movie. And, uh, and then... Um, uh, Joey Pants and Tommy Lee Jones are on his trail and yeah. um, and obviously Tommy Lee Jones gets the Oscar for playing Samuel Samuel? Sam Gerard Sam, Sam, Sam Gerard, Gerard yeah. the US Marshal uh, who gets a sequel um, who it's just sublime I mean it's just mm. brilliant it's Tommy Lee Jones is kind of like coming of age speaking of coming of age he's really come into his own yeah, he's been around yeah. for ages but in the 1990s he gets some plum rolls and this yeah. is the best of them this was like peak of his career basically and it is just so fun it and it is just fun. you can watch it again and again and again I think I must have watched this film as, I think I've watched this film as many times as I've watched any film, if that yeah. makes sense. Like, I, I have re-watched this film so many times. And it is that is, I think, as much as I'm going to talk about artsy, fartsy, whatever, and 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 scripts and cameras and, yeah. and, and whatever, editing, acting, craft, you name it, in this list, I think there needs to be room for a good old fashioned sit down, yeah. rewatch, or you know what? You know what? Another thing with the nineties was 
zapping through the channels. Yes. And you'd find the fugitive and it'd be like close to the beginning. It was like, I didn't kill my wife. And you're like, oh, brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> my next hour and a yeah. half is sorted. I do feel like it was one of those movies. I would just, if it was on TV... I no question. No, yeah, you yeah. did. Put the remote down, grab the popcorn. Yeah. yeah. If it was playing on TV here, I'd watch it. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So, uh, my number nine is a movie from Iran. Ooh. It's from 1990, and it's directed by Abbas Kurostami. Oh, gosh, who yes. Who has, uh, I think, passed away. He passed away in... Uh, uh, I can't remember. Sorry, I thought it would, it would be on the uh, letterbox. But anyway, but... Um, I'll look it up. This um, is the first of his films that I've watched. He was a member of the Iranian New Wave. Um, and after watching this movie, I saw it last year with a bunch of friends from film school because we were part of this film club and we wanted to, one of our guys picked it to talk about. And it is a sort of docu-fiction movie. It's like a documentary and a fictional film sort of put together. And it's about... And a lot of the movies in Iran in this sort of period in the Iranian New Wave did actually... That, that's their style, the docu-fiction yeah. kind of style. So it is... It starts, off, it, it starts off with the arrest of a young man. Like, you sort of follow these police officers... And, they, and then you see like a man being arrested and then you sort of revealed why this guy was arrested in, in the first place. And it's because, you know, he's arrested on tra and charged with, you know, impersonating a very well-known filmmaker. And, you know, and it's sort of, and it's because a family, a woman believes it's to be him. And then he sort of goes along with it. Sounds he, confusing. Yeah. And he goes along with it and then he goes on trial for it. So, uh. and also the really interesting thing is, a lot of the people in the film that the sort of documentary part follow, they're playing themselves. So it's like... Oh my God, Andy. I'm like, I'm, I'm zapping straight past to the fugitive at this point. But it's a good movie, right? It is a really, really, really good movie. It is a really, really good movie. But also it's a By really the way, uh, he died in 2016. He died in 2016. But um, I don't know. It, was, it, it really made a big impression on me in the, in the way that we sort of... How arts and how we connect to it and everything else. And also just the way that it was filmed. But also and, that whole thing of life imitating art. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But what it, I mean, I mean, I don't know. We we don't know shit from Shinola about Iran really broadly between us. But like, I wonder to what extent as well to make a film like, to make a bold film in Iran. I mean, obviously we speak in the era of the protests against the regime and so on. That one has to be, a, one has to be able to smuggle certain meanings in yeah, under yeah, the yeah. wire. And making a film that's kind of conceptually a bit hazy might be a way of doing that. I mean, I don't know. I don't want to. No, but it was really, anything. really well done. I think, yeah. like, I, but no, I wrote a review about the film, which we can you can find on our blog, and um, I'll link it into the episode description so you can read about it there. Oh, good. So I'll go into a little bit more detail about it. But no, it's a film really worth watching, and I feel like if no one, if anyone hasn't seen any films from Iran or anything from the Iranian New Wave, this is sort of a good film to start with. And I, and a lot of his movies are on the Criterion Channel, including this one. Well. Well, cool. So that's mean, my number nine. That a, little, is a, a little bit different from The Fugitive, but... Yeah, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> a very sort of great, sort of thought-provoking movie that's really worth watching. Okay. Well, um, I 100% I um, am excited to watch both of the films that you have uh, put on the list so far. Um, I, uh, I think um, it's a little bit of a shame because I know that I've basically just uh, come up with now two films that I know you know really well but yeah. that's sometimes the way it goes uh, my number nine is Rushmore directed by Wes Anderson from mm. 1998 which I think is an absolutely terrific little film about a boarding school and a strange boy um, who um, loves it and who's in danger of being kicked out um, and he's also described by Brian Cox's character as the worst pupil that they have mm -hmm. 
He's played by Jason Schwartzman uh, in his breakout role. Or, yeah, I guess you know. Um, you've got you've got Bill Murray in there. You've got first movie that Brian, he did with Wes Anderson. Yeah, Brian Cox. And I mean, it really is the first uh, big Wes Anderson film, isn't it? In some ways. Yeah, I mean, the um, first movie they did before this, him and Owen Wilson, was Bottle, Rock- Bottle Rocket, and that's a fine film. And I think there's some good. The ingredients of Wes Anderson's sort of filmography and style are there, but I feel like Rushmore was like where he really kind of got it right and really yeah. sort of set on a style, and it worked very well. Rushmore feels like a Wes Anderson film. It like does. It, when you watch it compared to any film that's come out, you know, even if, all the way through to now. All the way through to French Dispatch, it it feels completely of a piece with them. Yeah, um, but it's also vaguely autobiographical. You know, it's set in Texas. It's it's where mm. he grew up and went to school. And it, and it has a it has that thing that um, a lot of the great Wes Anderson films have, which is a weird and wonderful cast of children. Yes, um, which is something that his films you know dare to do often. And um, uh, and I um, I love the focus on school and what it can give to you and what it can do for you and also just how strange it allows itself to be but perhaps the thing that stays with me the most frankly is the soundtrack it's great i mean it is it is just just fantastic it's who the kinks it's all this wonderful 60s stuff and it's just again it's all part of this stew that will make the wes anderson film so enjoyable um i i absolutely i've only seen it the once but i absolutely love it and um and I can't wait to rewatch it. And it's so funny. Me too. I really want it's to watch so it. It's so charming. I love all the silly references to Al Pacino movies throughout it that are just gratuitous. But it's just like, why not? And um, yeah, I mean, it's it's not really it's not really worth going into the plot in that much detail. But suffice to say, you've got a kid who's you know in danger of being kicked out of school. So what does he do? He falls in love with one of the teachers and tries to start a relationship with her. Played by a Olivia actress. Williams. Olivia, Olivia yeah. Williams. Yeah. Um, hang on, verify that. And, um, I think it might be Olivia Williams. Uh, it is. It is. And um, yeah, and hilarity and hijinks, and actually quite a lot of um, tenderness ensues. Yeah. Also, some sort of like there's a bit of pathos in the movie. Yeah, and poignancy. Yeah. yeah. A lot of the sort of passage of time stuff. Yeah. Um, also, actually, a massive, massive shout out uh, to um, to Seymour Cassell, who plays Max's dad, Bert. Um, who's he, he such was... a move? He has such a moving performance in that film. I, I think it's one of those great, like underrated, should have got a supporting actor Oscar, you yeah. know, kind of uh, uh, roles. But he was a real big staple of those independent movies. He was in a lot of John Cassavetes movies, and uh, Steve. Buscemi, oh, yeah, Steve yeah. Buscemi worked with him a few times as well in um, uh, in the Soup, and also in his film uh, Trees Lounge, which was uh, uh, Steve Buscemi's. Um, directorial debut and um a lot of members of the sopranos are in that film and ironically enough david chase used the casting director and took a lot of the cast members and put them in the sopranos there you go yeah michael imperioli has a quick little small role in the film well well anyway um, i really want to watch rushmore again i haven't seen it in a very long time fabulous film fabulous film um can you tell me what you have put at number eight? So number eight is a film from 1994 and it is one of my favorite movies and it is that Kevin Smith's movie from 1994, his first film, Clerks. Oh, that's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's a lot of fun and very on brand for, for my list. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, yeah. So it, if, if you thought there was a lot of US independent cinema in the noughties list that Anders is going to make, oh, you've got another thing coming. Um, I'm guessing. I don't actually know what your list is. Um, Clerks, clerks, clerks is um, 
fantastic fun. Yeah. What I is feel it? like... It's a, it's a day in the life of two losers who work at a convenience store. Yeah. And that, and that was Kevin Smith's job. He worked in that, in that convenience store. In that very one? In that very store. Yeah, so he would... During the filmmaking process of putting the film together, he would film the movie at night and then go to work the next day and do that for the whole time while they were doing in production. Goodness. And he... I think he got... It's like, quite crass in places. It is it? very crass. And I feel like... it. it I th- and also, like, the film went through some changes originally because the, in the original cut, which got shown before it got picked up and became really popular, Dante, the character played by Brian O'Halloran, he actually dies in the end of the film. In, he like, gets, a robbery. He gets yeah. shot in a robbery. Mm. And a lot of people... And then because of the whole, like, reference to, like, oh, this is what life is. It's a series of down endings. But then they cut a lot... Like, a, a mentor of Kevin Smith said cut that scene out you don't need it it's not it's not it's well because the whole film would become about that yeah. yeah exactly but i think and actually the film is kind of a down ending i mean it's a, it has a kind of quote-unquote happy ending but it's yeah. not it's it's still a great i mean and here by the way this is the maybe maybe the ultimate generation x movie probably it's definitely it's, one know, of them it feels like a nirvana song come to life you know everyone dresses or like Pearl a nirvana song. <laughs> he works in a convenience store and <laughs> come in to buy cigarettes and burgers but, near Chewbacca. I, um, but i remember i mean the first time i watched it because i was i would because the characters jay and silent bob they originated from this movie and then they yep. showed up in all the other films so before like marvel films and their sort of connected films kevin smith did that with his movies yeah his the first, smithiverse yeah the view universe that, that sort of weird <laughs> sort of weird like alternative like <sighs> new jersey place and is uh, that where he's from yeah he's from new jersey wow yeah and um no, 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 no. so yeah he went to a film school in vancouver and then he left and anyway it made his movie and he sold his old his he sold all his comic books to fund the movie. The movie had like a 30... Which, if you know anything about Kevin Smith, you know would have been a terrible yeah, reach. Yeah, yeah. But he actually like bought all of it back once the film, you know, as soon as his career kind of that took part. That is a heartwarming story yeah, right yeah. there. So, yeah, the movie had like a $27,000 budget. And, he, oh, you know, the, the, the scenes, they, they were putting like the boom mic was a hockey stick with a microphone on it and stuff. <laughs> and he was editing the movie as well. And his producer, Scott Mosier, was editing the movie with him and stuff. And, you know, it's that typical like get your friends together and make a movie kind of thing about anything. Like, you know, it's what it's, you know, it's looking at what Robert Rodriguez did with El Mariachi, just seeing what is at your disposal and thinking okay i got a guitar i got a, a turtle i'll make a film about that and you know that became el mariachi and it's very gen x in the way that it's an intensely white film and yes. um it's really rather like its sexual politics are not great like it, they, it, they yeah. have a woman shag a corpse i mean it's not <laughs> i will say that sort of <laughs> the, the, the punch the punch that hasn't aged well yeah, no that part of the film hasn't aged well but i do remember watching that because our dad kind of came in sort of 20 minutes in like sort of 10 minutes into the film during the whole like 37 that part of the film and laughed quite a lot and then told me you shouldn't be watching this but he stayed till the end anyway and we laughed so much and it was that whole bit where it's you find out like who was in the dark having sex with the guy's ex-girlfriend both of us laughed very loudly at the sort of payoff of that but then you realized yeah (laughs) years later years Um, later yeah i mean and i think that was my big problem with the film and i love it i think it's great and i think it has a great influence on some of the teen comedies that get made towards the end of the decade like american pie and road trip and so on but i think my big problem with it is that it fundamentally again falls into that 90s trap of just lacking a certain amount of 
like it, it it has a certain cynicism to it and that makes you makes it hard to relate to the film and one of the big problems that starts to crop up in hollywood films of the 1990s although by no means all but some of the more gen x influenced ones is that you're looking at a gallery of characters none of whom you want to know yeah none, i mean none, none of whom you want to be friends with i mean randall is a very interesting character but you don't want to hang out with him i don't want to hang out with fucking dante yeah he's I mean, the nice one yeah but he's such a like very sort of like i'm not even supposed to be here today and a bit toxic and wants to get back there's an his, eeyore and he's uh, and yeah. he screws wants up to get back with his yeah, ex-girlfriend yeah. but he's in a relationship with a girl who wants him to like get out and do something with his life and no, stuff no, it's, and like, 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 it's like it, i mean i don't know so, it, watching that by sort of like late teens and early 20s it sort of felt like a, a great movie for sort of that period and maybe i'll look at it differently now in my i think it's you, i think 30s. yeah i think it's i think it's one of those ones where as you age you're like mm. but he's gone yeah. back you know he's made those movies and then he went and made clerks 2 which is them working in a fast food restaurant and then never should have done that yeah why did they make a sequel i kind of i like clerks 2 a lot and then he's made clerks 3 which is you know based around uh inspired by kevin smith nearly dying from a massive heart attack so the whole movie is a little bit about that and it's the same guys jeff anderson brian halloran and all those people it's back it's i really want to watch clerks 3 just because it just feels like it's like you know when i saw the trailer for it it was like you know seeing old friends again so all right yeah well um at number eight on my list is uh all about my mother from 1999. Pedro Almodovar. The 1999 supposedly the greatest year in film you were telling me some guy had written a book about. Yeah, I need to find the copy of that book. and um, I think we could disagree on that. But anyway, whether or not 1999 is the greatest year in film or not, this is a great film from 1999 um, by Pedro Almodovar, as I say. Um, it is um, very, very beautiful. Um, is extremely moving and very very funny in places and full of just sort of quirks and colors and um little weirdnesses that ultimately add up to a very delightful package um and you know the essential plot is that um this woman um loses her son in a very tragic car accident and um and as part of her grief she kind of re uh her name is um manuela she um she sort of as part of this grieving process goes back to um barcelona from madrid and retraces some of the steps of her former life uh, and meets old friends and new friends um and it's sort of about figuring stuff out Mm -hmm. and kind of finding common ground and finding um community but also um processing grief and reckoning with the past um that um that i think feels very spanish um so and also very um you know sort of of its time in terms of where europe was at this point um and just again very refreshing i mean i think it's a a film that had it been made in america would have just been full of like saccharin nonsense and string music and like I never knew you felt this way, darling. And um Oh you fucking hear the piano music. Yeah, exactly. Um, and um uh it's it it's just a bit I just love it that it has this kind of a mode of a wackiness to it that you yeah. you know that that there is um um there's all the for example in Penelope Cruz's character there's all this plaintiveness and and poignancy and and beauty that's then like offset in a good way by 
all the kind of like hijinks of the film mm. and and, the, and some of the sort of really spirited kind of camaraderie between um you know what is largely a female cast so um very I on d- brand with the Moldovar. yeah i just i i think it's i think it's tremendous fun and and um and, i really want to watch it yeah. i've only seen two Moldovar films i need to watch more the yeah. only ones i have seen are volver which also has penelope cruz and yeah. talk to her which came out in the 2000s yeah well i can i can heartily recommend this one yes number seven yes so my number seven is probably just one of the greatest action movies of all time not one of the greatest action films of all time but also one of the best sequels of all time and that is terminator 2 judgment day you're probably right it probably is both of those things yeah it is it's just you know guns and roses on the soundtrack you know you call me mine that one yeah uh it's just i don't know just like it's an amazing sequel i think it's just you know you, you it's essentially you know takes what we know from the first film but just kind of flips it on, the head, on, on its head bad guy in the last one is now the hero in this movie and he's, you know, he's yeah. Going, that you see, that's the clever thing. Yeah, it's not. It's like it's like bringing back Jaws, except this time Jaws is Quint. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's like this time Bruce is on the side of the angels. I yeah, love yeah, it. Yeah. I love that they did that. Yeah, I mean, it could have been. The, you know, it, I didn't know that when I when we first sat out when you first showed me these two films, yeah, we yeah, watched yeah. them back to back, and um, and I was so delighted because tell you the truth I felt the first film was like yeah da, da, da. you know like I didn't need <laughs> yeah, was you know like I, was like, oh, yeah. um, I, just, I don't need I didn't need I didn't know I needed another one and yeah, then this yeah. one comes in and it's like and what's his name Robert Patrick as yeah, the, Robert Patrick, as the yeah. other robot it, it, it's so good so menacing and also the fact that he you know he's a bad guy in a policeman's uniform yes yeah mm-hmm. making a little theme emerging little poli- political statement there mm-hmm. by james cameron but also i just think what it does to advance special effects and visual effects like i think that is amazing like all the stuff that they well, do the melty the melty yeah, the melty the, me- the liquid metal as they yeah. call it and just you know i think it's 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 i was about to say tom cruise got another action Whoa. star mixed up uh i think it's arnold schwarzenegger's best performance as the terminator i know he's done other films after i love that. it i love it you can say it's his best performance comma as the terminator yeah i think it's probably his best performance it is one of his best performances i mean he was just you know he was still riding high in the 90s and you know with total recall and kindergarten cop and you know, all that stuff i think with total all, recall the 90s yeah, yeah early 90s i associate that so get your ass to mars yeah okay um and um edward furlong who you know tragically you know got his life caught up in drugs and domestic abuse and all that sort of well he was the abuser and and is he the kid yeah oh no he got caught up another child actor. yeah yeah he's he got caught up in drugs he's been in and out of rehab oh no a lot of relationships that he's had with women have brought down because of his you know abusive nature and the things like that. He was in two films in the 90s that were really good. We should get a robot to go back in time and tell him not to do drugs. Yeah. But also, like, his performance in the movie is great. Especially yeah. a lot of the sort of moving moments. And, the, and that, and it is like that. the heart of the film is the relationship between the Terminator and, you know, John Connor. And how John is sort of humanizing this machine. And he's, he's like a surrogate father. Yeah, right? exactly. And also, you know, Linda Hamilton. Just, be, you know, in the first film, she was just like this meek woman and then she's a fucking fucking you know, star yeah yeah fucking... i love that i love that they turn her into this badass yeah yeah and i mean you know just i mean say what you will about james cameron i think he's done a lot for cinema and action movies and just kind of yeah, given given yeah. the blueprint about how to sort of you know that's how you sort of do it and well i mean he's going to make one of the films that sort of defines the decade in terms of its uh impact on the box office and that's uh titanic titanic yeah yeah 
Yeah. But no, Terminator 2 is a great movie and just, you know, filled with a bunch of great one-liners. Fan bloody Chill out. Dick wad. Um, my number seven is a film that I talked about here a long time ago um, uh, when we were doing our recommendations episode during the lockdown. And that is the Canadian film directed by Cynthia Scott from 1990. So it just sneaks in mm-hmm. as a 90s film. Um, Com- company of Strangers. Yes, or also known as Strangers in Good Company. You can always depend on the company of strangers. <laughs> right. Uh, and it is um, very simple. It's a busload of old women get stranded in the uh, wilderness in Canada and they have to um, find ways to survive. But each of the women is kind of playing themselves. Non-actors, and, I would imagine. No, not, not, not professional actors. And it is largely improvised dialogue and the film features these very moving sequences of images from the women's past and so it is a funny situational comedy that evolves into an incredibly moving sort of treatise on uh you see now i start using words like treatise you know we've gone from the fugitive to yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So it's, a, it's a sort of meditation on uh on the on the on the aging and 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 passage of time and so on and it is um it's it's great because it is you know this is a a, a canadian film um, not uh, you know financed by the boards of film in Canada it's an independent film it's directed by a woman it's not got a big budget it's not easy to get hold of I had to rent a copy on Amazon that wasn't in great condition but uh, I think it was ripped from a VHS but still you know worth yeah. watching watch any version you can of this film um, I'm sure someone might but have it put is, it on YouTube or something like that yeah I think so I, I, it is just one of these stunning little it's heartwarming it's lovely it's like and then you just think just why isn't this more well known like why this is a just clearly a, a great film and so one of the reasons i put it on my list is to try and get people to watch it because i think there are so so many films out there like you know we talked last time about the sight and sound list that comes out and, oh my gosh you know there's so many films on that list i haven't seen but then there yeah. are so many films that are so underseen that they don't have a hope they don't have a hope in hell of getting near that list. yeah you know and i actually think this one is one of the greatest films i've seen i certainly would put it in my personal sort of top 50 if i you know if i was making one and um and it's so unusual and it's so Again, it's that thing I talked about when we when we did the recommendation episodes. How unusual it is to have old people, especially old women, as protagonists mm. in any kind of narrative, let alone a film. Um, and how old women, especially widowed old women, are marginalized in society. You know, this film kind of deals with all of that without de- without hitting you over the head with it. Yeah. Um, so it's just a, it's just a really valuable piece of of movie making that. Um, that I think is a real treasure. So people should nice. watch it, and and that's that's my that's my opinion. Anyway, cool. Number six. Yes. So my number six is a movie that well, it's, it better be a movie. <laughs> we are listing movies. <laughs> it's a movie that is a spinoff from well, kind of a spinoff from a TV show, a prequel spinoff from a TV show that was very popular at this time in the early nineties, and that is. No. <laughs> Ironically enough, one of the actors in this film is also in the Flintstones. Okay, go ahead. Um, Halle Berry's first movie. I, no, one. What the Flintstones? No, no, what? No, 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 is this Halle Berry's first? No, no, no. What are you talking no. about? Is the title of the film Halle Berry's no, no, first? No, 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 and no, number no. six, Halle Berry's first movie. No, no, movie. no, no, no. Halle, no. Flintstones was not Halle Berry's first film, but it was her, one of her big break. Just, so is this? Has this film got anything to do with Halle Berry? No. 
Okay, what is the film? Okay, the film is Twin Peaks. Executive decision to know. (laughs) Is Twin Peaks Firewalk. Okay, very on brand. Yes, yes, yes. yes. And um, I was sort of crossed between either putting this or Lost Highway on the list, but um, I put it it in my top 10 because it is just fan bloody tastic. And it was not a film that was very popular when it came out, mainly because it wasn't like the show. It basically, David Lynch broke free from the restraints of. I mean, the TV show is dark as hell and weird. Yeah. But he just takes it a step further because he's not making a film for TV. He's not like, he's, it's not like HBO has swearing and things like that. He was doing this for like NBC or something like that. So he had, he had to tread some sort of lines uh-huh. and stuff. So here he's just, I mean, unleashed, unleashed a little bit. I mean, the first, Lynch the first like frame of the movie is someone breaking a television. So maybe that's just him saying like, this isn't the TV world of Twin Peaks. This is now the film world of Twin Peaks. Uh-huh. So the movie is, it looks it's it's a film in two parts it, it sort of looks at a murder of a woman that's mentioned in the tv series and it's about the fbi agents kind of you know trying to figure that out but then it doesn't kind of go anywhere and then and then we're sort of the second's very david <laughs> and then the second part of the film is the last few days the last week of laura palmer played brilliantly by cheryl lee and cheryl lee is fucking amazing in this movie mm. she's so good and um without spoiling anything because i don't want to like give off any big reveals or anything like her performance in it is is great and a lot of people have come up to her over the years because this film wasn't very popular when it first came out like it was booed at can tarantino like had a big quote where he said like oh this film is just david lynch is just up his own ass and everything like that which fuck hang on a minute that's a bit bloody rich coming from quentin (laughs) tarantino who's born up his own ass yeah exactly so over the years, this film has been reappraised and it's actually become more of a... It's like, you know, it's kind of a psychological horror classic in, in a lot of ways. Mm. And, it you know, there's a lot of frightening scenes. Angela Badalamenti, who sadly has passed away recently. A lot of uh, fa- a lot of Twin Peaks family members have passed... Uh, well, cast members, you know, of the Twin Peaks family have passed over the years. A lot in the last couple of years. But no, it's a fantastic film. Beautiful and disturbing um you know, frightening as well but you know there's a lot of nuance to it Cheryl Lee's performance is compelling and you know it's just an incredible film just incredibly mesmerizing well I am um, again I'm ashamed to say I haven't seen it so it'll have to go straight onto my watch list and I actually have to watch the show as well it's watch so, the, yeah, it's so yeah, embarrassing yeah, to say yeah, I haven't yeah. even watched the show anyway um at my number six is uh, a film from Hong Kong and it's uh Chunking Express by Wong also Kong on my Wai. list Oh, is it? Yeah, oh, you, you, have you got it higher? It's number five, yeah. Ooh. Okay, so anyway, my... Uh, so hang on, did you just do your number six? My number six was Twin Peaks, yes. Okay, well, let's talk about this uh, as a combination of my number six and your number five. Yeah. Great film. You watched it recently? I just watched it recently for the first time and I fell in love with it. Yeah, is it? I just, yeah, a film about falling in love, you fall in love with it. You yeah. fall in love with everyone in the film. Yeah. It's, like, male and female, they're all it, delightful. It, it's a cool film. Bloody hell, it's cool. It's so cool. Yeah, this... This isn't a film that's... It, well, first of all, yes, it is trying to be cool. But it is succeeding massively in being cool. Um, what's her name? Uh, Christopher Doyle's cinematography is amazing. Yes. Uh, also, um, Bridget Lin and Faye Wong in yeah. this film are so cool. Yeah. Um, if it's a completely different thing. So Bridget Lin... Again, it's film in two parts, right? So first part is... This mysterious woman in a blonde wig, played by Bridget Lynn, is, is um, with the sunglasses. With the sunglasses, is um, you know she's involved in some criminal activity, and uh, a cop is has fallen hopelessly in love with her, and she's like, eh. and um, 
and she's also getting like stressed out because of the the nature of the the unfolding world that she's in and then the the film kind of hinges on this snack bar at which Fei Wong Fei Wong's character works Mm -hmm. uh, and she falls in love with a cop so it films about unrequited love in two directions between these um with involving police officers she falls in love with this other cop and as part of this she obsessively replays um the mammoth and the papa song california dreaming while also breaking into his apartment and cleaning it yeah and rearranging things and like making it more cheerful mm. and trying to sort of have an influence on his life and the payoff of especially the second story yeah. is just so delightful it's Puts like, a big smile on it yeah i mean talk about like feel good movies yeah i yeah. mean it's just it, and i love the use of the the Cranberries song. Um, yeah, it's the, an Asian band that... Uh... No, it's Faye Wong sings it herself. Oh, it is? Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, wow. I think. I think so, anyway. Check me on that. Um, but um, what's the song? Uh, Dreams. By Dreams. The... Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Um, I listened to that song on repeat after watching the film. <laughs> I, I couldn't get fucking California Dreaming out of my song for a year. But, um, out, of your, out of your song? Out of my head. Sorry. <laughs> um, uh, but, oh, man, it's so much fun. It's such a delight. It's just... Um, Oh, uh, sweet and cool and funny and sexy and you know that you, you feel you also feel the location. I mean, yeah, like it's, it's very much like you know of Hong Kong. I feel like yeah. uh, very sort of you know multicultural feeling. It's pre I think pre ninety seven. It was nineteen ninety four. It came out right. So yeah, ninety four. So that's pre handover. Um, so uh, yeah. I mean, whatever. It's a great film. Um, I mean, and, um, I know we were being a bit negative. Easy on to get, easy to easy to. Yeah, uh, the Criterion Channel. Yeah, yeah. I mean, speaking of uh, Tarantino, I know we were a bit like you know making fun of him before, Thanks. but he did actually help get this film out to a wider audience. Thanks, Quentin. Yeah, he's a bit of a one car Y fan. So I guess I should do my number five. Yeah, do your number five. Do you have to do it. <laughs> do it. Do it now. Uh, Kill me, I'm right here. Oh, it's eighties. I can't do that. Pulp Fiction. Also, nineteen ninety four. Also on my list at number four. Well, this is amazing. We're just like, we're knocking it out of the park. Okay, so there's some overlap here. Pulp Fiction, you go. Yeah. Um, what is there to say? <laughs> it's a great movie. I it's, mean, it is. I mean, it, it's yeah. a, again a cool film. Yeah, and a film that's trying to be cool. But it's also annoying in places. And it's, yeah. Definitely everybody who watched this movie in 1994 who wanted to make films and love movies, they just sort of looked at that and be like, Let's just rip this off and do something of do our own pulp fiction. Yeah, I mean, because there was a lot of pulp, pulp, so many imitators, a lot of pulp fiction clones. Yeah. yeah, um, but it is. I mean, so you know, before we get to anything else, like it is such a breath of fresh air. Yeah, talk about first of all how to tell a story that skips around in time effectively. How to tell multiple stories about parallel characters working in the same universe in yeah. different on different tracks it's a very like the geography of the storytelling is very clever yeah yeah, yeah. um very new wavy almost. the use of soundtrack is you know the, pop, the pulp fiction soundtrack of in on its own is a wonderful album i have it is it as, I, on cd you have i think we still CD. have i think we still have it here yeah it's somewhere um it uh the the use again another thing that started to happen in the 90s but became obviously much more ubiquitous in our own era is this idea of the comeback casting yeah uh john travolta is a good example but the 80s were not kind to john travolta no but also like you look at someone like bruce willis in this film it's like you know not necessarily someone you'd think would show up in a film of this no offense quality yes um and um and 
I would like to say just about Bruce Willis, I hope, given his sort of health. Oh, yeah, of yeah. course. That's fair. I mean, yeah, because he plays a boxer in the film. And he's yeah. got those. Aphasia. Yeah. Um, not saying those two are connected, but anyway. Um, that storyline is great. Apart from the whole, like, I don't know, it's a little homophobic. But um, anyway, um, where was I? Uh, the cast, yeah. You've got um, Samuel Jackson. Samuel I want to come to Samuel Jackson, but but um, um, Tim Roth, Harvey Keitel, Harvey Keitel you know, yeah. like another one of these kind of comeback, kind of throwback castings. But yeah, I mean, the film belongs to Samuel Jackson. Yeah, the I mean, film, yeah, the film's energy, the film's swagger. Come, I think most people think about this and they go, "No, oh, it's all about Taran- uh, It's all about sorry, um, well, it's all about Tarantino. <laughs> it's, all about Tarantino. <laughs> it's all about John Travolta like swaggering around. It's like, yeah, for yeah, me, yeah. this film hinges on Jackson, and it should. Jackson is the core of this film in terms of his journey yeah. from the the very beginning of the film when we see him you know just cold-bloodedly murder someone to the end where you see him spare a life yeah spare two lives mm-hmm. and um and all the, and, and in between you just get this series of fantastic lines from him you know um i'm a mushroom cloud laying motherfucker motherfucker <laughs> yeah exactly just the just his use of the word motherfucker alone is, is it deserves to be sort of enshrined yeah. um but um, yeah, and it, and it was a shame that he lost out to fucking Jack Palance for the Oscar, you know. And it's um, was it that year? I think it was, wasn't it? Might have been. Um, and because um, he did, he did shout out "motherfucker" when he lost. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, and 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 he has become this great treasure of cinema ever since. You know, I think he went from being this sort of reliable character actor who would show up in yeah. Uh, well, he had a great Lee films and so yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. Good, he well, great, he's in Goodfellas. Yeah, yeah, he's in Goodfellas. But he had a great in in a film that came after Do the Right Thing, Jungle Fever. He has a great supporting character performance in that film, and I think that put pushed him further into like you know into the into the movies. And a and a film that's not in my top ten list, but could just as easily be, um, is Jackie Brown, which he did for Tarantino after Pulp Fiction, and uh, which is just. Um, Comeback, comeback performance for comeback film for Pam Gurr and Ulster, also Robert Forster. Uh, yeah, also a member of the Twin Peaks family who passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but you know, that's um, that's just another example of what this sort of does to Jackson's career. I mean, he becomes the, the sort of ever present in in so many of uh, Tarantino's movies. But um, I mean, it's just it's it's delightful. Again, it's also the thing that starts to happen in the 90s where it's like this you know nostalgia being done differently it's not nostalgia being done in the sort of Greece American graffiti way where yeah. it's like we're taking we take the whole film and move it back to the 50s but we're going to do this thing that more and more films and more and more pop culture starts to do which is take the past and bring it into the present yeah. so we're going to make a bar that's themed about the 1950s the movies, Jack yeah. Rabbit's Limbs we're going to have um, everyone is going to have 1970s audio technology and listen to the appropriate music on and it. the cars as well the cars exactly it's it's all these anachronisms existing in the current era which is a very romantic thing but also i think tells us something about how people are dealing with the changes in society the way that everything is becoming more globalized the way that mm. that that individual distinctions between um people and things are kind of being broken down um and i think pulp fiction is just such a celebration of 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 hollywood in some ways as well i mean without ever explicitly calling it back you know it's set in los angeles you've got the jack rabbit slim sequence you know you've got all these 
references to movies, especially um, kiss you know, me B deadly. movies and stuff, and Kiss Me Dead and Noir, and you know. So I feel like there is a, it is in some ways a love letter to Hollywood, but it, you know it can just be enjoyed on its. It, it's yeah. just a tr- terrifically entertaining, but and it's in such bad taste in some places. But that just that's a that's of its time, and B, yeah. that just makes it all the more fun. I, the only issue I have with the film is Tarantino playing yeah. the the role. And, and him deciding use, to use the N-word. That is yeah, the, he gets a massive slap on the wrist for that. Really. And in front of Samuel Jackson. Yeah. I don't know how the hell Samuel Jackson didn't put his arm around his shoulder and say, listen, let me tell you the <laughs> 50 million reasons why you shouldn't be saying the N-word on screen. But also, like, in the context of the film, he's saying that to a murderer. <laughs> but also, he's saying that as nominally an ally, right? Because yeah. he's married to a black woman and he's got a black friend. Yeah. So why the fuck is he using the N-word? It's so weird. anyway it's that's a whole other conversation as well. that's the only part of the movie which i have a big issue with yeah but I, I i have a small issue around the whole like uh gay rape thing and how yeah the movie sort of tacitly endorses the idea that if you've had sex with a man you should be outraged or something mm. i don't know it, it, it's it's also like yeah that's consistent with marcellus wallace's character so who knows yeah. i'm just you know fair enough details but it's so much fun yeah it is such cool fun and yeah, Uma Thur- we haven't even talked about Uma Thurman yeah she's amazing but I mean oh, she's that bit where she says don't be a and draws square, the square yeah, yeah. Oh, and, she, and she does it kind of again in Kill Bill I thought that was nice oh yeah oh well I just think I mean as, as good as she is in Kill Bill I think she's just so lovely in this I film. love her hair in the movie I think yeah. she's great yeah the sort of Louise Brooks kind of thing she's got yeah. going on yeah man no it's 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 wonderful um, and um yeah, I don't know what else. What else can one really say about Pulp Fiction? I mean, his ass. <laughs> it's Christopher Walken. Yeah, carried in his ass. Okay, but uh, where are we? Even I mean, now? Pulp Fiction was my number four. Okay, so that means I do my number four. Yes, Toy Story. Yeah. Okay, so there was no overlap there. No overlap. Um, from the opening sequence, yeah. you know you're in a different. World. Yeah, you're in a different animation. Randy film. Newman's music. You've yeah. got a friend in me. You are watching a kid play with his toys, and you're like, "This is one of the sweetest things I've ever seen." I've already got dust in my eye, and then the toys come to life. Yeah, yeah. But that's uh, such a relatable thing. Yeah, because we, you know, we were we had to. That's toys the, when we so. Were kids. This is yeah. the thing. This film came out in 1995. Pixar film. We watched it in the cinema. Yeah, and legitimately changed the way I thought about toys and yeah. playing. But or also the connection it, that you have with your toys. Put, put a different way, it crystallized the way I thought about mm. it. And I had, as a child, a very, very sort of particular relationship with the idea of play yeah. and the imaginary. And Toy Story, the way it captures and celebrates that, it is just still mm. such a heroic achievement for what it says about what children are capable of and what and the nobility in this idea of imagination and mm-hmm. and and although um you know the, the there is some like you know there's some irony no well, not irony there's some looking back and be like did sid really deserve to be traumatized the way he was you know <laughs> like he, really, he doesn't know that they're alive he's just blowing shit up like he's yeah, just being yeah, a, but you know um there is poor child <laughs> exactly poor guy I mean, Mr. Sylvie's just like you know he must be in counselling anyway um, it's just um, it, it's so the moral of this is just so watertight and then so before you get to that so the, all of this stuff about the ethos of the film the quality yeah 
voice cast, Hanks, Alan, all, all these other yeah. people. Uh, you know, you've it got you've first, got your uh, you've Don got Rickles. Don fucking Rickles. You've got the, 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 the this brilliant soundtrack with Randy Newman, and then the tech, the script, and the technique. The technique of doing the first... This is the first time that we went yeah. to the cinema and saw computers make moving images. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was incredibly revolutionary at the time. Yes! Because, then, because that was how Pixar began. Pixar began just as a computer imaging yeah, yeah. company. It then became a studio. Yeah. They became a studio because they were so good at making movies that could show what their computers could do that they decided that actually they'll just do that. Yeah. And as far as I understand it. And that's amazing. And what they've done... What that that sequence of films that they then embark on, ending with I don't know Cars two. What's the what's the consensus about what's the last like what's the bit where the, they sort of like fall uh, off in quality like Cars two or something you know? Yeah, Cars two. Yeah, so it's like, but that's that's an, just amazing. I mean, and and Toy Story still the the Toy Story trilogy is one of the best t- trilogies yeah. in the history of movies. Let's be honest, and um, and just captures everything that's good about those people yeah. like everything that that is unique and lovable and wonderful about those incredible people who made this company go mm. and who um and who just poured so much love and fun and humor and sweetness into these films um and there's so much of it in but remembering the, the claw <laughs> but remembering the important they they the, the thing i love about pixar is that it's all about the story and the characters yeah and that's that's the important thing about and it's like, exactly they're never they're never just like showing off well they no. sometimes show off I a mean, little bit Nemo is kind of you know it's like look what we did we just did a whole seascape from here <laughs> but Wally or whatever but the mostly yeah they're just making good cartoons using yeah, different yeah. tools yeah but and, also just making yeah. the film accessible just not just for kids but for adults and everything yeah I think oh, that's kind of, I mean that's kind of the problem I had with some of the early DreamWorks movies like Shrek they were a bit like for this sort of younger sort of side and everything like that yeah just the Shrek movies just never like they're fun but they just never ever touched yeah. you know Toy Story Toy Story is I mean the reason why I put it at number four there's a reason I put it above like Pulp Fiction and Chunking Express mm-hmm. it is a film that I feel just is on every level that you want a film to be important. Exactly. It's technically astonishing. It is um, completely entertaining. The The quality of everyone involved is is, is at the highest. And yeah. it deserves recognition. Definitely. Um, shout out to uh, The Lion King, which I was thinking of trying to put on my list somewhere and I couldn't manage to find room for. But now that we're talking about animation, if I had could have put another animated film on the list, The Lion King would have made it on there. But... Yes, sadly no. Anyway, what's your number? What are we on? My number three. three. Yeah. My number three is over the line. <laughs> oh my goodness! It's the Big Lebowski. Yeah. Again, just a film I could watch again and again and yes. again and never get bored of. Yes, this also appears somewhere on my list. <laughs> so we can talk. But well, we can talk a bit about it now and then maybe finish talking about it when I get to it. Yes, we can. So um, it was our dad's favorite film. He introduced this movie to us. Yeah. So there we have that. We have we have the family yeah. connection. And it also, is, it's amazing how many films like our father and us. Yeah. sort of enjoyed together from this era not just in this era but from this era mm. that we continued watching films from the 90s or with a 90s sensibility yes. like well into like the subsequent decade when he died but um yeah i mean big Lebowski so much fun so why don't we what I'll tell you what we'll do we'll talk a little bit about our purse no let's talk about the film let's do it the other way around let's this side of the discussion, talk yeah. about what's sort of like some of the tech specs of the film, like who's in it, what it's about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we'll talk about our like personal relationship to it yes. when we come to talk about my 
Yorkshire. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a cult favorite of a lot of for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, it stars Jeff Bridges. This was his. Uh, I mean, this was the first time he collaborated with the Coen Brothers. He would again in 2010 with uh, True, True Grit. Grit. Yeah. And uh, John Goodman, another Coen Brothers regular. Steve Buscemi as Donnie. Uh, Julianne Moore. And just, I laugh every time when she says the, like, she just goes, vagina. Just the way that she says the word is just hilarious. Um, and she's, she's, such, she's such a treat. And then in all of this, quietly doing the Lord's work is Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. This is our concern, dude. Still one of the funniest lines yeah. in cinema. Her life was in your hands. We've been frantically trying to reach you, dude. Yeah. He... The way he just quietly does his thing while all these bigger performances are going on around him is just exquisite. But like, there's some moments where, like, Mr. Lebowski has secluded himself in the West Wing, where he like bends his head and sticks his arm out. Like his kind of physical choices with his character. Oh yeah, were just so on point. He he um the 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 bit where he's showing the dude around the big yeah, Lebowski's yeah, yeah. office is um. Is astonishing. So the whole film, in many ways, is a throwback again, nineties huh, to the, this is the era of the throwback. Is 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 to 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 the film noir, like private detective movies. Yeah. Even though it has nothing to do with those in terms of atmosphere, yeah. it's still this this strange plot involving um, a rich man and his wife and someone who's drawn in from the outside who doesn't really know what he's doing and we there's see money there's the yeah, dude's perspective you see everything yeah. from the dude's perspective it's a world of seediness but it's also a world of weirdness yeah it's set in los angeles um and um so you know th- and there's all these sort of if you care to look for them all these references to chandler and and so on yeah um but one of the people that comes i mean not did, chandler from friends now no, 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 raymond chandler raymond chandler <laughs> Uh, but no, but we did. This was actually one of the early episodes of our podcast. We did talk about this film. Yes, we did. And, yes, um, very. I think it was like episode two or episode, three. Episode two or three. Yeah. yeah. And, and on that episode, I'm quite tempted to re-release it again now because it is. I, I actually. Uh, you really know what we should do. That. You know what we should do. We should re-record it. We could. Yeah. yeah. A, re- a retrospective. Uh, yeah, yeah, a new, yeah. A new new takes new takes on the Big Lebowski. But yeah. no, the the the, the <gasps> what. <laughs> It turned 25 this year. We should have done it this year. Oh, yeah. Shit. Uh, carry on. But anyway, so it it was a little bit... They, there was a guy called Lewis Abernathy who was a bit like a budding screenwriter and he actually shows up in the tit- in Titanic as uh, Bill Paxton's buddy in that film. And he was kind of like a sort of weird, like private investigator. And the guy, you know, when he gets the mug thrown in his face, that happened to Lewis Abernathy and things like that. Oh, interesting. And uh, Walter Sochak, played brilliantly by John Goodman, is of course based on John Milius. Yeah. Who, you know, great screenwriter who worked on like Apocalypse Now, Conan and... But also famously a nut. Famously a bit of a nutbag. And if you've seen interviews with John Milius, the first time I watched, saw him speaking, I was just like, that's just Walter. Yeah. <laughs> Walter? And again, if, if I think we probably did talk about this on one of the episodes of our Oscar, you know, alternative Oscars. Why the hell did John Goodman not get an Oscar nomination? And why does John Goodman not have an Oscar nomination for any of the films that he's been in? He's amazing. I don't understand that. He's a wonderful actor. Yeah. It's yeah. a great performance. It's such a like bombastic performance, but yet it's such it's a, a like, beautiful performance. Yeah, his physicality, his <laughs> his his whole the way he he manipulates his voice and his yeah, yeah. his the way he can carry his body. You know, he's this huge man, and yet he the way he shifts his his physique in yeah, the film yeah. is just. I mean, you talk about the way Hoffman does. It. I mean, there's so much cleverness in all the performances in this. Yeah. Um, even and, it's uh, Steve Buscemi who barely, barely yeah he's always being told to shut up but yeah it's um, 
there's also, funny enough, a lot of references to North by Northwest in this film. Very specific references. Mm. There's a bit where uh, he does the trick that Cary Grant does, does of tracing on the paper yeah, to see what's yeah, been yeah. written before. Uh, there's the thing about you were at a party and you were drunk and abusive and the, the whole mistaken identity thing. There's a lot of little um, little weirdnesses like that. Um, and um, yeah, again, it, amazing soundtrack, yeah, uh, yeah. amazing use of Los Angeles. But I think we should leave it here and come back to it when yeah, we get to when we get to my um, my talking about the Big Lebowski because uh, you know um, there's more to say, but it's also it's higher on my list. Yeah, because at number three, I have Silence of the Lambs. I have that on my list too. Where is it? Number one. Oh, okay. Well, uh, this is getting confusing. This is okay. We've got some real messy overlap going on <laughs> at the top of our table here. Ah, uh, okay. So, um, how are we going to do this? Okay, let's just. I'll. I'll talk a little. bit. you talk about it first, and then I'll talk. Okay, about it the later. Silence of the Lambs is a really, really great thriller, which we've also done a, uh, an episode about. Um, it is not, however, in that sort of '90s thriller mode. It is a thriller for the ages. It yeah. is both. It has elements of the best of David Fincher. It has elements of the best of Alfred Hitchcock. It has elements of the best of, um, uh, like uh, what's his name, Sidley Lumet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it has it has um, real uh, and all encompassing darkness in it, and also great heart, which mm-hmm. I know is a weird thing to say yeah. about a film about a cannibalistic serial killer, but you know what I mean. Um, it has. It is. It is. It, of course, it is just full of, chilling as of, hell. Of full of great performances, and the two at the heart of it are immortal, and yep. they are right. They. They. There is. It. It seems ridiculous that the two films that have won, is it two or three, the the two films that have won best director, best actor, best actress, uh, three films. It happened one night. One flew over the cuckoo's nest, and this. Okay, so one flew over the cuckoo's nest. You think? Okay, that's that's. That yeah. makes sense. Yes. It happened one night. Okay. Screwball comedy. And then this one. But together as a set, the three of them just make no sense. But there, <laughs> once in a while, a film comes along that you can say, yes, that was the best picture of that year. Yes. Yes. That was the best director, Jonathan Demme, of that year. Rest yes. Years. Best actor. Yes. Best actress, etc. It's best screenplay. Um, it, in, a, in, a, in a year, 1991? 91, yeah. Yeah. Where a lot of good films came out. Silence of the Lambs just sails above them. Yeah. Um, and talk about being able to rewatch it. I went to see it with my buddy Nick last year around Halloween on the big screen. And I would have loved to have seen it on the big screen. <sighs> so nice. If you get the chance, yeah. you, should, you should watch it. It is it it looks great. It is such a well done um such a well done thriller. Um I feel like it has had the a script is amazing. Yeah, and I think it's had a huge influence on the Nordic noir genre. I, I every yeah. time I watch it I think about um things like the killing, especially the killing. It definitely um, had like an influence on like a lot of '90s thrillers. I think like maybe Seven gets a little bit of that. Gets you know people always films that came after that was like oh like Seven was the one that kind of started it all. But I feel like this one kind of yeah, maybe yeah, yeah. set it up. A yeah, bit. and I think that sort of '90s obsession with serial killer. Although the serial killer thing goes way back, doesn't it? So well, I mean, yeah, I mean serial killers were like they were popping up all over America during the 1970s and '80s, and you know, and also in the bit of the '90s. As well. But I think maybe Silence of the Lambs helps ensure the serial killer genre's survival not least because we get so many sequels and we get yeah. the tv series hannibal and so on yeah um so anyway i'll leave it there and you can talk more about it when we get to your number one which unfortunately now for you people uh, you know what it is <laughs> spoilers <laughs> so what's your number two my number two is goodfellas no oh. is that on your list nope <laughs> okay 
That's another one I had to, with a heavy heart, I had to leave off. You love Goodfellas. I love the hell out of Goodfellas. I think it is just a tremendous bit of filmmaking from Martin Scorsese, who I feel like any time when Martin Scorsese do, does movies like this, I always feel like he's directing it like it's his last film. Like, it's sort of him Or going, the last chance I'll have a well, chance to direct a film like this. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. It's like, you know, of course he did a gangster film afterwards, like Casino, which is basically Goodfellas 2.0, which is fine, but it doesn't quite have, like, the energy and the sort of panache that Goodfellas has. And I think just it works so well as, like, a gangster film. It works so well as, like, a character study and also, like, again, kind of a coming-of-age sort of movie a little bit. Oh, yeah. Know, a little bit. Totally. Great fucking soundtrack. And, and, and it's a journey through the past because you go back to what the 50s, the 50s yeah, yeah. You go all the way from the 50s till like the 80s and everything yeah. like that so you just see it's like again that a lot of themes emerging across the 90s of like you know going back in time and yeah i think just the way that he kind of delves deep into the world of the mafia in many some in the many mafia. ways the, the the mob the mafia the mafia the mafia the mafia, <laughs> the mafia darling yeah, the, the mafia yeah <laughs> Peru, Peru. Yeah. Uh, so you know the way he kind of delves deep into it and like really showing what it's like and what you know all the just the the way it works a little bit. And I think of course the Sopranos takes that a little bit further years later. But the Sopranos is essentially a spiritual sequel. I mean, if, to it. if if it's it, I think of the Sopranos as being like Mash. You know, yeah. it's like the, the TV show Mash and the film Mash. You know, it's yeah. like it it they it is the same thing. It is. Yeah, it is just it's the same universe. Yeah, I mean, obviously it helps that there are loads of the same actors involved, but yeah, like yeah. Tony Sirico, yeah, who also was a bit of a criminal as well. Well, allegedly, well, <laughs> or allegedly. not? No, actually, he did. But... He did. He did spend time in prison. He did say like he said when he this was... is he plays Paulie Walnuts. He plays yeah, Paulie yeah. Walnuts. And he yeah. was the one who said he didn't want to be a snitch. Yes, right. that's right. And um, no, I just think also Ray Liotta, who sadly passed away this year, it was the first. God, there's a lot of people on this list who are no longer yeah, around. Yeah, no, it's like, I think Ray Liotta's performance in this movie is amazing. And he was a fantastic actor. I mean, he had a very, like, powerful intensity about him, but there was something quite charming and incredibly compelling about what was very going. interesting eyes Ray very Liotta. interesting eyes eyes that could like just stab you like in in many ways but i mean but speaking of stabbing um a voice that could stab you <laughs> joe pesci joe pesci's so good in this movie and he won an oscar for this movie and had like the shortest speech of all time what did he just say thank you he just says thank you and walks off because yeah. i think he was a bit drunk and didn't expect to win that night oh that's brilliant yeah i just always thought he was just being too cool <laughs> um pesci is this is one of those he's a firecracker yeah but this is one of those performances that i think is genuinely like you know, maybe one of the most memorable of all time. I it mean, is. It's hard to think of that many others. I mean, within the gangster genre, you've got to go back to Cagney before yeah, you find yeah. anyone with the 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 crazed energy of uh, of Pesci in this film. Um, but just in general, like how to take being not even the main. I mean, he's what is he? He's like he's the, the third lead. Yeah, third lead in the movie. Um, and you, you know, and with with. Obviously, it's a long film, so he gets plenty of screen time. But still, I mean, to, to be able to make that big of an impression on mm. this, on this movie is, uh, I mean, just such a testimony to his craft. Also, Lorraine Bracco as well. I mean, she oh, she, sure, she, she does very well with you know with what could be seen as a thankless role, and I think she does kind of give it her all. And I think you know, I mean, she was like the OG Karen. You know, she's like the the first of many Karens that we've seen over the years. Um, yeah, and also I think a you know a kind of a um 
a prototype for a lot of the female characters we would see in this premise. As yeah, well. yeah, they're, yeah, they're exactly. complicating the idea of the gangster's mole. Yeah, what happens I mean, when the I gangster's mean, mole becomes a mother, for example? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And also, just I mean, you could make comparisons between Lorraine Bracco's character in Goodfellas and also Evie Falco's character. In uh, yeah, of course. There's, yeah, there's, Carmella, yeah. They, they meet very well in the middle of those two. Yeah, I mean, also Lorraine Bracco is great as Doctor Melfi in Sopranos as well. Of course, she is. Yeah, yeah. and just. I mean, Joe Pesci's performance in the funny house scene is the first time I watched it. Yeah. I was terrified because I didn't know what the hell was going to happen. And I'm like 10 or 11 when I'm watching this movie. Yeah, but you shouldn't have, shouldn't have watched this movie at that age. <laughs> Don't. But, like, but like the sort of like, but the character that he, you know, that character that inspired Nick in the in Goodfellas, a lot of people were like, you 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 had to say you, you just had to walk on eggshells around this guy because you weren't quite sure if you said something, you weren't sure if this guy was going to hit you or like give you a hug, and that's that happens in the Sopranos as well, where people are just like, I'm just busting balls, and then someone gets like a glass yeah. bottle in the face or something. Right, and I think that that the way this film sets up the idea of violence is very. Yeah. I mean, it begins with them burying a body, so yeah. you know that something's going to go down, but. The way in which, through over time, the violence becomes more and more frequent and paranoia awful steps and, in, yeah, well. and also just like completely um, unnecessary. Like when Michael Imperioli's character is just gunned down unnecessarily yeah. by uh, by Joe Pesci. I mean, it's just it's just horrible to watch. I mean, I think one of the reasons I find this, the the Goodfellas less easy to rewatch than, for example, Godfather, is that it's so. Did I just say The Goodfellas and Godfather? The good, yes, you did. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Why I find The Godfellas harder to watch than The Goodfather is that um, it's just, they're all such wankers. They're, they're all, all such yeah, beastly, yeah. beastly humans. I remember when I watched this a lot when I was a teenager and I was like, oh, I like these characters. They're so great. And I, the same thing I have with The Sopranos. And then when I rewatched The Sopranos a few years ago for the first time, I just remember, I was just, there was the, in my head while halfway watching like the first season, I was just there going like, these guys are assholes. Yeah, well, <laughs> like, yeah, absolutely. There's no, lo- I mean, the, the whole like loyalty thing kind of goes so far because it, you know, all you, that macho nonsense. Yeah, because I feel like, you know, these guys are like, you know, brothers and, you know, in their own family, but at some point they feel like, you know, there could be any point where they look at a guy and be like, he's got to go. <laughs> no, it, it, I mean, and that's, yeah. and that's, that's the thing that Scorsese just gets so right is how fucking just awful this milieu is and how also yeah. you know that idea about machismo and like you know being one of the guys and like never you know never letting you letting people down and all this like fake bullshit bullying yeah, yeah, yeah. like masculinity that gets set up is so toxic and it's like yeah of course this is a gangster movie but there's a lot of it you could apply to you know the workplace and other families or and Hollywood so or something like yeah, that Hollywood, exactly so um, but there's that line in The Sopranos that really kind of cements certain aspects of like Goodfellas it's like that of that life because you know good scorsese was criticized about glamorizing the mafia life in that the movie the mafia but which i can agree with and maybe a little bit disagree with as well but I, it's like tony says in one of the episodes i think it's in season one where he says guys like me you know we could either you know you know get arrested or get shot or go to jail and i think that just shows like that's the life that they live hmm. and it's like you know you can you know you can have the sort of the stats, the status, and the respect, and everything, but at some point, it could go either. It could go either way. It's total, just like live for today, no consequences. It's it's, and I think the way in which the gangster has become a character on, you know, that is so ubiquitous in the history of cinema reflects that. I think in the same way that we idolize rock stars who 
live their life at a million miles an hour and shag and take drugs and all the rest of it and it's like wow where's this gonna like where are they gonna come down and also let's enjoy the ride because it produces some great art you know um we also look at gangster characters on film and to some extent the ones who make their way into the headlines in real life as these glamorous individuals who you know are delivering some kind of thing that we crave like an idea of confidence of being able to handle yourself without any recourse to law or society or government or anything like that that you can exist in the world totally independent of these norms and actually have a great deal of power and wealth in a very local and limited way Mm -hmm. but you know, and I think there's something very troubling in that that's always been there. I don't think it's necessarily unique to the 90s, but um, the fact the, the there is a there's a reason why crime films and especially gangster films are such a part of of Hollywood and you know international film history, going right back to the 20s. Yeah, I mean they're perfect like rags to riches and sort of American dream sort of stories in yeah. many ways. And, and of course, of- Scorsese is so film literate that the that Goodfellas is full of. Um, film references including at the end where Joe Pesci yeah, shoots yeah, his gun yeah. at the screen and that's the callback to Edwin S. Porter's uh, the, first, uh, the Great, train, the great train Robbery which is the first western but also in one could argue the first uh, gangster film yeah that's true right speaking of westerns my number two is Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven Q Metallica <laughs> <laughs> no not Q Metallica but Q um, this is a very uh, film yes, <laughs> it's, 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 it's just such a like it is a very uh, film, yeah, yeah. The moment the movie ends it's not just like riding off into the sunset kind of movie it is just riding like off into the mud hole yeah, uh, yeah it's a, a bit of a precursor to deadwood and that kind of stuff oh massively yeah yeah actually that's a good point you got a good parallel with um with the uh, goodfellas there except the one thing is where you can exactly transpose the goodfellas universe onto to sopranos yeah it, the deadwood has so much more joy in it yeah, Unforgiven. Yeah, yeah. there is nothing joyful about Unforgiven. it is just endless misery um <laughs> such a depressing movie yeah, so, so if, if people don't know it uh it um clint eastwood plays a reformed gunfighter who's william lived, money william money who's lived in the middle of nowhere on a ranch or on a, on a farm really a mud uh, pile mud pile yeah with his wife who's dead and he's there and then he gets approached by a young man who says look these two prostitutes have been attacked no, this one prostitute has been attacked. Yes. Horribly. Her face mutilated in this town. Whose name I can't remember. Um, and um, I, you know, they've raised money to, to, to hire people to kill the, the people who did this. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so money sort of reluctantly goes along, as does his friend, played by Morgan Freeman. Ned Logan. Uh, Ned Logan, thank you. And... Um, and they go to this town, this town which is ruled with an iron fist by um, a sheriff played uh, Little... What's little Big Daggett, played by Gene Hackman. Little who, Bill. Little Bill. Yeah. Who play, who, Gene Hackman, who won his uh, second Oscar from this movie. And who's brilliant. Yes. Uh, and you know that he is... He means business because early on you get this character called English Bob, played by Richard Harris. Yes. Who shows up and he's, you know, Mr. He's really like sort of... He's supposedly a renowned gunfighter and Hackman just like... Squishes him. <laughs> squishes him like a bug and um and hackman is a really like that hackman and eastwood in this film are really interesting versions of the western trope like, yeah eastwood is a fantastically interesting um angel of death which he's yes. been playing his whole career pretty much um and that is you know let's be honest 
that is what Shane is in Shane, or that is what um, James Stewart is in some of his films, um, or what John Wayne is in some of his films. They are killers. They are murderers. They are angels of death. But they're usually played as angels of life or angels of civilization. Heroes, yeah. In this, he is legitimately an angel of death. Like, and he becomes an angel of death by the end of the movie. Yeah, and Hackman is a sheriff, and I mean, we're, one of the themes again in this thing is qu- police in questionable roles. Yeah. He is a policeman who is clearly somewhere in there is a good human. He's mm-hmm. building a house. He wants to yeah, do right, what's yeah. right for the town. He doesn't want people to carry guns. He doesn't want people to get hurt. But he also does it his way, and dispenses his version of justice. And yeah. he has no, um, he has no. Uh, uh, qualms about any of that or any and has and has no accountability mm-hmm. and so what happens when that when a law enforcement doesn't have accountability and rules the town essentially in place of any government you have a police state and that's mm-hmm. what you know a lot of people would argue in the 90s that you had in certain places in america and True. um that you have had since and the rise of militarized police and so on you can read that into the development of um you know, you can read that into the movie. Not that, I mean, of course, Clint Eastwood's politics now is not exactly anti-police. But yeah, one of the I mean, things yeah, I think true. that the Western always can do is tell truths about American society. And what this film tells us is that there's no good, there's no bad, there's just a lot of death and 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 destruction, death and, and, mud. and uh, death and mud, and um, and unfairness, mm. and people people's lives getting ruined, and um, true, and the way that some that Eastwood, who shouldn't have made any other movies after this one, but did anyway. But he's he never made he another. He's never made another western. He's never made another proper western anyway. No, he hasn't. And I'm glad because he knew enough to know that this was the final full stop yeah. on his career as a director and a star of westerns. Yes, and you can and tell pays, because pays at the end of the yeah. film, yeah, he he devotes dedicates it to Don Siegel and uh, Sergio Leone. I feel like Don Siegel kind of gets a bit lucky to get on that uh, card, but whatever. Um, I mean, Dirty Harry and all that stuff. Right, right, but still. Um, But it is is amazing that Eastwood has, at that time, enough self-awareness to know that the way to do it is not to do what John Wayne did in The Shootist and go out nobly, but to go out ignobly with a Mm. messy, bloody, muddy, depressing, frankly, film. And um, I've got to say, for all of his subsequent shenanigans, I admire him hugely as an artist for yeah, taking yeah, that yeah. decision. And Unforgiven is a stunning Western. Yeah, that's really true. Is. Well, probably, I mean, the last great Western? Maybe. The last great Western, maybe. Maybe so. Great in big capital letters. Yeah. Right, so number ones, um, Big Lebowski. Uh, let's talk about Science of the Lambs first, because yeah. it's more depressing. And then we'll finish with, <laughs> we'll finish with, finish with something lighter. Um, yeah, I I love Signs of the Lambs. I think it it came, I came to a point when one time I was watching and I realized this is a fantastic film and it's one of my favorite movies and I can you know watch it again and again and again. It's in my top ten, definitely my top ten. Um, your top ten movies of all time, not just I mean I know because it's in your top ten because it's literally number one. Of no, the no, 90s, no, 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 but top it, ten films, top ever. ten, top tens ever. Yeah, maybe top, we should do that. Yeah, we could. Um, I do we do like they did on Sight and Sound, but. I I just think this movie's fantastic. I just love from the opening, the opening we we get a sense of we get our main protagonist. We get that she is an FBI agent in training. We get that she is trying to sort of find her way in what 
essentially is a very male environment. And we get that when she goes into an elevator and she's surrounded by all these blokes. Yeah, yeah. Burly, you know, burly men and you know, look, looking like they smoke Marlboros. Yes. And, you know, it's a, a great psychological horror film. We don't really see that much bloody violence. We always kind of see it in images and, and, and we sort of get... Oh, it's so much scarier because of that. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's very effective. And I think David Fincher does that extremely well in Seven because we always see the aftermath of things. And I think that sits very well in the imagination. And the, the scene in the morgue where they're looking at one of the bodies and we're just focused on Jodie Foster and Taki, uh, Taki Fujimoto's cinematography is amazing in the way that he kind of puts them front and center and they're looking directly at us and i think that works that's the thing we could there's so many scenes in yeah. that film where we just see her face and it's like we could just as easily be looking through her eyes yeah we're looking exactly. at her and it's so much more effective yeah and i think it's even it's incredibly effective when anthony hopkins is looking directly at us and i think mm. that makes him very terrifying and his presence i mean he's in the movie for what 23 minutes that's overall insane. and his yeah. presence is felt throughout the film yeah and um funny story he really thought like he thought it was a kid's movie when someone said like oh there's a movie called Sons of the silence of the lambs and they want you to be in it is it a kid's movie because <laughs> because of lambs and originally gene hackman was going to direct this movie gene hackman was going to direct it yeah star and in direct the film and then i think he looked at the subject matter and he realized he couldn't do it who is he gonna play uh lector or i think maybe scott glenn's character weird but Scott Glenn actually listened to a lot of those FBI recordings of people talking with serial killers and he just turned it off because he couldn't take any more of it. They just got too much. Well, yeah, work. and I think I think there's something there's a definitely a line to be walked there about like, you know, to what extent one needs to base this on real life because the characters, you know, the books are already so thoroughly researched. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but there's also like, I mean, glamorizing like the mob mob life in Goodfellas, the, the mafia, but also like there is that you can be interested in serial killers and looking at them, but you have to remember they are bad people. You well, shouldn't. this is, I mean, and this is the heart of yeah. Science of the Lambs. Yes. You're on Lecter's side. That's from that, that, that's, the that's second what he does. time yeah, you meet he, him. Yeah. Like, you are warned. The The film warns you. So don't, don't, get, don't let this guy inside yeah, your head. Yeah, yeah. You, he, they're talking to Jodie Foster, but they could just as easily be talking to us. He's bad. He's done these things. But that's and what, then, by the, but, but five minutes into meeting him, we're in love with him, and we want morning. him to succeed. <laughs> we want him to succeed. Yeah. In that scene where he gets away and he brutally kills these cops, we want him to succeed. Exactly, and he makes it out in the end, and he yeah. goes after Doctor Chilton, played uh, uh, I can't remember the actor's name, but anyway. Um, but no, but that's true. But that's the same thing with like Ted Bundy when they saw him, because all the before that, serial killers were just like you know people who just look. Yeah, of course, that guy is a serial killer, but Ted Bundy was like this like handsome guy next door kind of person. And when people saw him on trial or pictures of him, they were like, oh, he's too nice to be a serial killer. He looks too nice. Yeah, and, and they play and on that in the film with the, the headlines being like renowned academic or whatever. Yeah, 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 exactly. And that's, that's you know, that was that's how they got people snared into their traps. <laughs> but also, I mean, coming back to the film as a technical thing, you know, it's the writing is so clever not just in terms of the script which is crackling but also the little payoffs like you know they look at for example the body mm -hmm. of that one woman and then it like, looks like she tries to claw her way through something and then you see later on a fingernail trapped in a wall which and is, it the is scariest. that is Ooh. one of the scariest yeah, things yeah, yeah. in the whole movie it still sends a chill up my spine also ted levine's performance as buffalo bill <laughs> <is kind of laughs> talk, talk about okay this is the funny thing so We've got two films at the top of our list here, you know, Silence of the Lambs and, and Big Lebowski, which are just full of things that we say to each other the whole time. Wait, was she a great big fat person? <laughs> Put the fucking lotion in the basket. <laughs> Precious. Precious. 
Don't you hurt my dog. <laughs> you don't know what pain is. Yeah. Uh, um, but still very scary. Yeah, but still very scary. <laughs> Make him sound yeah. like a clown. But there's but, but there's ways that like Russia. In- <laughs> Is this the way that... I think he should have played Gollum. Yeah. But the way that, like... I mean, Buffalo Bill is a horrible character, but in that scene when he's, you know, Catherine Martin is in the hole and, you know, she's pleading to him and you can kind of see him tearing up and stuff. I feel like that's a moment where I feel like Ted Levine's trying to humanize the Keller a little bit based off, like, like looking at the guy's past and trying to bring that into yeah. the scene and stuff. I think oh, no, that, there's so much going on in yeah. that. I mean, he's he's the he's the sort of... I'm glad you brought him up because there, there is. It's a very crowded cast, yeah. and he does, uh, he does a, a really, really amazing job. It wouldn't work if he didn't. Um, yeah, but look, I mean, it's just a. We could talk about it forever, but we should knock this on the head. But it is a, a great film. But just to come back to the Big Basket, uh, one thing about Sound oh, of sorry, sorry, before sorry. Howard Shore's music is fantastic. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Thank you. Worked a lot on a lot of David Cronenberg's movies, and of course, familiar. Everyone's familiar with his work on Lord of the Rings, but his music in this is fantastic. The Big Lebowski. Yeah. To finish on a smiley note. Yes. Speaking of quotable. To tie it all together. To, to tie the room together. I don't think there is a film that you and I quote more than that. We probably quote it all the time. I yeah. don't, and I, there are so many just day-to-day moments where I will remember something from The Big Lebowski. Splitting hairs are? Yeah. No, and also the way, just the way, uh, yeah, Carmen, you are. Yeah. Um, the way Walter talks. So many of the great lines, of course, belong to Walter, but not all of them. Um, you know, there there are so many excellent bits like the um, you know, what what what's in the briefcase, you know, business papers and you know, what what's your line of work? I'm unemployed and you know and then I wouldn't hold out much for the hope for the tape deck or the credence. Or the credence. <laughs> Again, it's like I don't know why that's funny, but it is it's really the way funny. that he says it, the actor who I forget yeah. I forget. His oh, name. He's also in Deadwood, yeah. isn't he? That and guy, just yeah. like the way that he's looking at the marijuana <laughs> or the credence. <laughs> yeah. Or the cre- guess we can close the books on that one. <laughs> I um yeah uh, I I just uh, there is just such an endless cavalcade of brilliant bits that you look forward to yeah. you sometimes forget about is this your homework Larry you're also, killing your father Larry but also like John Turturro's character as well yeah. is like nobody fucks with the Jesus yeah. <laughs> yeah but they made a movie about it which isn't apparently very good no I just think why do that yeah, why fuck things up but look leaving that aside I think there's just um. In a film as silly as The Big Lebowski, mm. and in a film as dumb in many places that The Big Lebowski allows itself to be, to find so much room for genuine heart and actual like thoughtfulness and just brilliant filmmaking, yeah, like yeah. the way the bowling alley is, alley is filmed with Roger Deakins, isn't it Roger Deakins? Yeah, it's yeah. Roger it's Deakins. Yeah. I mean, Roger Deakins makes this film look. I mean, it's just astonishing the the use of soundtrack, the use of of um, you know. The, the clever little writing techniques and then the fact that you find yourself caring about these characters yeah. these losers these these bums you know to uh, use the to use the the big lebowski's term the production designer was rick heinrichs yeah i mean it's it's so it's just the, how a film a, a stunning film the best in my opinion that the decade had to offer can emerge from such stupidity is yeah. just is just amazing, and and that's a, a and and we don't, you know, we talked a lot about the Coen Brothers last time, but they 
deserve such credit for what they did. And we don't, we haven't talked about Fargo. I'm surprised it's not. Yeah, on, yeah, yeah. You it's know, a little um, bit low on my top fifty list, but um, I do like Fargo a lot. But I just think Big Lebowski just has a yeah, just it's. Yeah. And then they do, a, you know, they do a couple of other films in the nineties that are pretty good as well. Let's be honest. Um, or Brother White. Well, Brother White Thou came out in the early two thousands. But I'm thinking about Miller's Crossing and Oh um, yeah, 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 yeah. And um, Barton Fink. Yeah, both great films. So Cause you don't listen. <laughs> um, it is. Um, it, it yeah. I think they are again like Pixar. It's like with very few exceptions, they're concept and their execution are just flawless and um you could just as easily put fargo on either of our lists i think Mm. um but for some reason the big lebowski just is just sweet and i don't mean sweet and like no i mean it's just like chef's kiss you know it is just like ah it is such a Mm. like crystallized piece of brilliance like and it's it's so it's great because it's not about anything and yeah, yet it's yeah, about yeah. a lot of stuff and it's just like I just and it's also about this whole era about you know all these people who can't get over the 60s you know think about what we're talking about like yeah, it's, yeah. but it's made by people from Gen X I just it's well, so they, well, they, rich well, I mean, it's they, so it's yeah. rich in a way that it that it has no business being like the first time I saw this film I thought it was just a throwaway just comedy I, I thought it was on a par with you know like a yeah. like a an American Pie or something genuinely like I thought oh this is gonna be some 90s comedy and it's like you know I thought it'd be like a Will Ferrell movie yeah and it's got every yeah it just it shoots for the stars yeah I think a lot of I mean Will Ferrell's movies and that sort of early period they are funny but they don't a lot of them don't have like the heart and the rela- relationship. this is sublime i mean i'm not yeah. we kind of it, it, it's pointless to try and to compare yeah exactly it's like comparing um you know a, a, i don't even know what like a, a I don't, it, it's point it's silly to even talk about but it's like there's no comparison the big lebowski is sublime yes the big lebowski is one of the greatest films ever made but it shouldn't be but it is. And that's the greatest joke of them all. Mm. Is that this film that's about nothing. We believe in nothing. <laughs> is, is so, it, it's completely silly. Yeah. Manages to be so completely incredible. It's, it's just, it's mind boggling. I don't, I feel like if this movie came out today, I don't think anyone would watch it. Or I feel like no one would find a way how to market that film and how to like get, it, it, it would it would find it would hot... have to be made by the Coen brothers yeah exactly or it, it would just... have to be made by an established like, filmmaker yeah. filmmaker who could write their own checks yeah yeah but if it was someone who had like a really big like say like Damien Chazelle did something like this after like winning Whiplash or winning awards for Whiplash I mean it could I mean but it would have to be a completely different film because yeah, the thing yeah. is the, one of the reasons this film works is because it was made in the 90s yeah because it is about Vietnam which is still on everyone's minds as Desert Storm happens because it's about people who have lost their way in the real world and about men who can't figure out how to live unless they're a soldier or an activist or a musician or or a bowler or whatever like who can't function in society good companion piece would cut his way definitely it's yeah really good actually good point um well something you brought up at the off podcast a while ago right yeah yeah. well thanks for stealing my point um (laughs) and or reminding me of it at the same time um but yeah it's so there's there's just a there's just such a a great deal of you know timeliness in Mm. this uh in this film um the last the last scene on the well the penultimate scene on the cliff when they scatter the ashes and 
when Jeff Bridges, like, just the dude goes off on Walter and says, like, you're a fucking travesty, man. It's like, what has this got to do with Vietnam? What does anything have to do with Vietnam? And it's all done on that wide shot. And also, like, bringing back what you said about the physicality that John Goodman brings to Walter and the way that he kind of stands, like, with his cargo shorts and his vest and his T-shirt. He just looks like a, a big dumb big child yeah exactly <laughs> just like the way it's like I'm, so, I'm sorry dude yeah. it's just like you, like i just love that scene but it's also sad in a lot of ways but then they hug it out and then they just go bowling and but i feel like yeah. look i mean for me just to say i think one of the reasons i put this number one because for so many reasons this sort of represents the 90s i think another reason it couldn't be made after 2000 is, or 2001 is just like the world changed you know this i think people were prepared to go to the cinema or mm. rent films that um just showed silly things happening in ways that weren't fully explained. And I yeah. think what has changed is that in a world that increasingly doesn't make sense, because in the 1990s, at least the world seemed to make sense. Yeah. But the world is increasingly not making sense. So I think people demand more sense and more sensibility from their films. And there's no room for the Big Lebowski in that kind of ethos. And so I think we should end it there. Yeah. With the recognition that the Big Lebowski is... Fantastic great representative movie. of the 90s anyway yes. should we quickly run through the list yeah uh, I'll just go through my list very quickly so number 10 Boys in the Hood number 9 Close Up 8 Clerks number 7 uh, Terminator 2 Judgment Day number 6 Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me number 5 Chung King Express number 4 Pulp Fiction number 3 for me The Big Lebowski number 2 Goodfellas and number 1 for me uh, Science of the Lambs mine were number 10 The Fugitive number 9 Rushmore number 8 all About My Mother. Number seven, Company of Strangers. Number six, Chunking Express. Number five, Pulp Fiction. Number four, Toy Story. Number three, Silence of the Lambs. Number two, Unforgiven. Number one, The Big Lebowski. The Big Lebowski. The millionaire. <laughs> Jeffrey Lebowski. Um, yeah. All right. Let's get out of here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we got to have dinner now. So, yeah, you could. we've mentioned before where we are. We are still on Twitter. On the internet. Yeah, Find yeah, yeah. us. Instagram, Letterboxd, Stitcher, Pod, Podomatic. Not so much Spotify, not, not so much problematic. SoundCloud? Not so much SoundCloud. No, Acast. Acast. We're a part of the Acast Creative Network. Yes. Uh, Acast, Apple Podcasts. Uh, you can also check us out on Good Pods. If you click the link tree link, you'll find us It's there. in the notes, people. <laughs> it's like, sounded like Ken Brockman there. It's in Revelations, people. <laughs> yeah, it's, it will be, all will be revealed. But you know, you probably, uh, you probably know this already, but... Um, if you give us a five-star rating, it really helps, yes. uh, I think. And if you uh, subscribe, it's great. And if you tell your friends, it's the best. Yes. Tell your friends about this wonderful podcast about films, and we will love you forever. Yeah. Do follow us on Twitter. We do. I mean, we haven't tweeted as much on there because we've been busy with Christmas and and work and everything like well, that. Well, and you've been, you know, busy in, with war with at war with Elon Trump. Uh, Elon Trump. <laughs> Elon Musk. <laughs> uh, anyway, look, before we go down that road, uh, let's get out of here. Yeah. And, uh, Wish everyone a happy new year and everything else. And we'll see you next time for the 1980s, which I think is going to be spicy. It's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. I, I, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be fun. Oh, that's going to be a very hard list to put together. Yeah. Oh, well. Anyway. Anyway. Bye.